I'm Pastor Mark, uh, if you don't know. Um, I am really pleased to, and privileged to welcome up my friend Lenore Three Stars uh, to, to share the word with us today. Um, Lenore, one of, as I think about uh, who Lenore is and the role she plays in our church family, um, it's, it's hard to describe um, to those who aren't connected with the Covenant Church family um, just the, the privilege that we have of being part of a larger church besides just this individual body um, and the, um, the deep debt that we owe to those who are willing to, to lead and to speak into our body at those levels. And Lenore uh, has just been um, a participant and a, a servant of the church um, on the, the um, regional level and the North Pacific Conference on the national level. Uh, she's been willing to, um, to share who she is, uh, to help us to reflect on our theology, uh, the way that we've failed at times to love God and to love each other well, and, uh, the, and to testify to the, some of the brokenness that that's led to, particularly in indigenous communities, um, and also just Lenore's um, hope and willingness uh, to walk and to see uh, wholeness and reconciliation and restoration come into our church uh, and into our um, communities and land. So I'm grateful for her. I've been blessed by her ministry in ways that I know directly, and I know that I've been blessed in ways that uh, that I have yet to discover the exact length. So I uh, really appreciate her and, and welcome you up. Thanks for sharing with us, Lenore. It is said that in the early days, the people ate the buffalo, but the buffalo ate the people too. Ew. <laughs> it was a terrible time of disharmony. The creator heard the prayers of the people, and he told Crow, call all creation together with their best runners for a great race around Hesapa. If the Tule gets one, then the buffalo would no longer eat the people. Yay. But if the four-legged's one, the buffalo would continue to eat the people. Ooh. So all creation participated. The birds with their two legs were on the side of the people. It was a grueling race. It lasted for days and days, and it was so hot out. Some runners stumbled and fell behind, and some runners just collapsed completely from exhaustion. And then there were those runners who wandered off for a long, cool swim and a nap. <laughs> In the end, the people's best runner looked to be no match for the strong, young buffalo cow. Magpie, who was the slowest of flyers, had been resting on the back of the buffalo. Suddenly, she flew up towards the sun, and that's where she got her glistening tail feathers. And then she swooped across the finish line just ahead of the strong young buffalo. The Buffalo Nation agreed this was a good race. We will give our lives so that the people can eat and live. And the people agreed that we will respect the Buffalo Nation and treat them as relatives, and we will not take more than we can eat. Let's pray. Wakantanka iotamashaka. 
Most mighty Heavenly Father, Ookiapi Nue, guide us and help us, we pray. Creator Jesus, may these words and this time together unite us in your spirit. Mitakuyapi, Hihaniwashite, good morning, my relatives. Before I properly introduce myself, I wish to observe a protocol of respect by recognizing that I'm a guest in these ancestral lands of the indigenous hosts. Since we are on the southwest side, not near the river, then I won't include the river tribes. So I would like to acknowledge the land of the Multnomah, the northern bands of the Chinook, and the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya. I honored their stewardship and their relationship to the land, the water, and the wildlife. So why is it important to offer this protocol of respect to recognize the indigenous hosts in their lands? Because they're still here. History and politics would erase them, but the land remembers them. The land is a witness. So I follow a protocol of land recognition to say that I reject the ideology of the doctrine of Christian discovery that took, oh, that took over the lands of North America. As a new country, America embraced the doctrine of discovery as a right inherited from Great Britain, and they rolled it over into manifest destiny in this country. In 1823, the Supreme Court uh, instituted this discovery principle in its rulings on property rights and concluded that natives only have a right to occupy the land, not to own it. By treaty, the government owns the land for us, which is how I came to be born on an Indian reservation. I didn't learn that in school. The discovery ideology continues to dehumanize and oppress Native nations in the United States. So a proper land acknowledgement is a form of resistance. Um, now I'd like to properly introduce myself. My name is Lenore Three Stars. When people hear Three Stars, they generally assume that it's a Native American name, although some have questioned whether I'm in fact a business. <laughs> <laughs> Three Stars is the anglicized name that came from a story that my ancestors told the Indian agent. So I'm Oglala Lakota, which, as my dad, which is one of the seven bands of the Lakota that is part of the Ocheti Shakomi, uh, the seven council fires, fires that make up the uh, Great Sioux Nation. I was born on my father's uh, reservation, Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And my mother is Minikoju Lakota, another one of the seven bands, from the Cheyenne River Reservation, in, also in South Dakota. So our ancestral lands include Hesapa, which is the Black Hills, a sacred site where our creation story lives. When I introduce myself, I think in terms of kinship, because in Lakota culture, the Teoshbaye, which is the um, fundamental family system of extended family. That's everything. So when Indians ask me, where are you from? They're really not asking me what city I live in. They're asking me, who are your people? 
And when they learn that, they know what my relationship to the land is. And who knows, I might be related to them because there's always a cousin in Indian country. <laughs> uh, just a quick caveat that you're going to hear me use the terms um, Native, Indian, Native American. I use them interchangeably because none of them are accurate. The only thing that's accurate is what we call ourselves in our own language, Malakota Oyate. Um, but being Lakota doesn't qualify me to speak for other Lakota or any of the 573 uh, nations that are recognized by the federal government. So today I just speak for myself. Um, I do like to offer a bit of my personal story because I think it might help you see through my lens an indigenous perspective of the gospel story. There's no such thing as a culture-free gospel, right? We all come from somewhere that shapes our worldview and forms that lens through which we see and experience life. I was an adult when I decided um, in a small covenant church to follow Jesus. Climbing over that threshold of Christianity as the white man's religion was a struggle, but love one. I wasn't converted. That rankles as conquest language to me. And it wasn't the right evangelistic tactics that won me. But it was a long relational learning process that helped me decide that Jesus is who he says he is. He's creator, son, savior. So I said yes to Jesus, but my faith struggle wasn't over. We had moved off the reservation when I was very young. About 55% of the native population in the United States is what we call urban Indians. That means we live off the reservation. But it's a fluid population that goes back and forth for family and ceremony, and we maintain our cultural ties. But as an urban Indian, I think that acculturation predisposed me to accept the Western model of Christianity as truth with all its dualisms, um, good and evil, heaven and earth, material and spiritual reality. The Gnostic dualism separating the material and spiritual realities does not reflect a holistic, integrated worldview of the indigenous people, S secular and sacred. That's, I felt that I had to accept that an eagle feather cannot be sacred because only Jesus can be sacred. If I said anything in Native culture was sacred like a song, or the land, or a dance, or a feather, then it was a straight leap to syncretism. You're worshiping those things, and that makes me an idol worshiper. And what does the Bible say about idol worshipers? That's, that's bad. <laughs> so I accepted that kind of dualistic thinking. but. Accepting that kind of propositional truth meant that there must be something wrong with Native culture. There must be something wrong with me being Indian. So I didn't find a home for my cultural identity in Western Christianity. So church, like school, became one more place where I had to not be too Indian. But at home, I was told, be, crowd, be proud that you are Sioux. I had two identities. I learned to norm that dissonance, but it was inevitable that one day I would yearn to follow Jesus as a Lakota woman. 
To do that, though, I would need to decolonize my theology. Native believers who follow the Jesus way often refer to creator. So to me, creator is Jesus. The presence and agency of Jesus in the act of creation is affirmed in John 1.3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in Colossians 1.16, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible, visible, all things have been created through him and for him. So for me, creator Jesus. My faith is based on the divine personhood of Jesus, not on the religion of Christianity. In fact, I don't like to say that I'm Christian, especially around native people, because that term is deeply associated with horrendous injustices against native people by the church in partnership with the genocidal policies of the federal government. For instance, when I first learned about Indian boarding schools, it totally wrecked me. The unimaginable cruelty against Native children, kidnapped from parents by the government for assimilation so they could kill the Indian to save the man, but instead they killed the child in the Indian. They suffered loneliness, neglect, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse, starvation, overwork, and from too many, death, all inflicted by the government in concert with Christians, Christians who profess the Imago Dei. I couldn't help thinking of my own family, and my faith was crushed. I cried, Jesus, where were you? But I imagine this question has been heard through the ages of affliction, the Holocaust, slavery, ethnic cleansing, and my heart aches for those children on the border right now, legally kidnapped and incarcerated, fully legal but fully immoral. We need to wrestle with these hard questions, and we need to do it in community. Jesus taught into community Gospel life is not meant to be individualistic. We are meant to work life together, to do what is right in the eyes of Creator, not settle for negative goodness, not resting on the fact, well, at least I don't do those unjust things, but go for more. Be consciously anti-injustice to whatever is unjust against humanity and all creation. So this brings me to worldview. Like all of you, I'm on a spiritual journey. My journey is continuously decolonizing my theology, and it has been life-giving, a little scary, but life-giving. In seminary, my indigenous theological studies helped me see that much of my theological stress and the cultural conflicts are actually a result of a difference in worldview. Generally, mainstream Western Christianity is shaped by a Western European worldview with Hellenistic influences. Worldviews are important. You all have one. When I called you Mitakoyapi, my relatives, I was reflecting a Lakota worldview that we are related. Our worldview, Mitakoyayoyasi, it translates out to all my relations. And it means we are all related 
to creator, to each other, and to all of creation, human and non-human. The goal of this philosophy is to be the best relative you can be. Be a good relative. In the Lakota way, we are related to all creation, and that means we are related to every created part, the water nations, the plant nations, the star nations. We call all parts of creation our relatives, and that draws respect into the, re into the relationship. Ketua Cherokee Randy Woodley, um, author and theologian, wrote, all things created need each other to live in harmony. When this right relationship of harmony is broken, we must do our part to work back towards balance. That's being a good relative. So how did we all become related? Well, scripture says that God made a promise to Abraham and his sons in Genesis 28. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. We call that the four sacred directions. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. That sounds like we're related. In Lakota culture, if you're not already related by bloodline, you can make family relatives. This happens through marriage or by a hunka ceremony of adoption. And this chosen adoption is as strong as any family relationship, sometimes even stronger. Romans 8.16 tells us, the Spirit of God brought about our adoption to sonship. The message version says, God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. If you and I are adopted as creator's children, that sounds like we're related. Our Lakota creation story says that Eon, the spirit force of creation, made all creation bit by bit using its blood. Eon has no gender. And that's what made us all relatives to all creation. When right relationship is broken, it's our duty as a relative to find a way to heal that broken relationship and come back into harmony into balance. So for natives, we have more of a tangible spirituality, so that generally involves ceremony and prayer. We confess a need and we discern what is our part to do, and that can sometimes be sacrificial. And this will bring us to the theology of the land. The life philosophy of Mitakuye Oyasi includes the land. We are related to the land. Lakota called earth unchimaka uh, or inamaka, and that means mother or grandmother earth, to bring respect into that relationship, kinship terms of deep respect. Indigenous peoples have long held a theology of the land that uh, Western European uh, Christianity does not. I imagine that at one time when the settlers were in their own homelands that they had that deep connection. But when they left, I, that was severed. And I think that caused what I call land trauma for them. They tried to satisfy that void by taking our land as property. But only a relationship to the land satisfies the spirit. Some settlers claimed that they wanted to 
evangelize natives, but colonizing for Jesus has always been about the land. An African brother pointed out to me recently that he would know how to go about healing his relationship with the land because his people were forcibly taken from theirs. So it's a hard question of ongoing generational trauma caused by the doctrine of Christian discovery. Exploration ships made discoveries all along the west coast of Africa and brought transatlantic slave trade to this country, to North America. And that ideology is constant. What is the mythical story that we hear about this time of year? Thanksgiving? It's another American dualism that doesn't tell you the whole story. On its face, it's about pilgrims and Indians. But who belongs to the land? I certainly don't have a problem with people enjoying Thanksgiving. I do. I enjoy it with my family. And all our relatives, the birds and the squirrels, get their fair share. But I reject the happy American myth that erases the genocide, the land theft, and the poverty that colonial history brought to this country. The happy picture of the pilgrims and the Indians eating together doesn't honor Native history and culture. It doesn't honor the Native people who are still here. Clearly, land is a biblical theme, as in the Hebrew land covenant with the Creator. Indigenous people are created, are connected to their ancestral lands in a particular geographical place, which is their land covenant, their spiritual connection to place. It's not portable. This sense of place is foundational to Native identity. This is why we saw the water protectors willing to give their lives at Standing Rock in the middle of winter. That's why we're seeing the murder of land and water protectors in the Amazon and throughout South America right now. Indigenous people hold a deep relationship and identification with the land, with all creation. So theology of the land also includes our creation stories. Creation stories tell us who we are and where we came from, like the Hebrew creation story. The Lakota creation story says in part that we emerged from the land in Hesapa, what we, the spot that we call the heart of all that is. Hesapa is the specific homeland for the Lakota, and we're responsible to care for it as it cared for us for millennia. To not be able to exercise that care, um, to fulfill our part of the covenant, it feels like a coerced disobedience. Today it's called Black Hills National Forest and there's a biker bar down the road, but it's still sacred land to us. Certain ceremonies are still carried out there at certain times of the year on behalf of all creation, all of us seeking harmony and balance. George Tinker is an Osage uh, historian and theologian, and he wrote, Native creation stories are our history of experiencing the Christ as creator, who communicated healing and salvation to all his creation. I believe that creator Jesus has and will always be everywhere present in creation, working out his redemptive purpose. 
So Creator's redemptive purpose found me. And in spite of the dualism in Christianity, I was able to see my native identity in Creator Jesus. I'm still amazed that Jesus incarnated as a relative, a brown tribal man. He showed himself to be a human of great courage, humility, wisdom, and generosity, all Lakota values that are taught today. Jesus demonstrated his radical model of love for all, knowing that he would be killed for it. I've heard it expressed that Jesus was the first dog soldier. A dog soldier is revered in Plains culture. He ceremoniously plants himself in the path of the enemy to show that he will give his life to protect his people. And one day, it just clicked for me. The values of Jesus, the gospel values, are planted in every culture by creator as a way of living. John 3.8 says that the spirit goes where it wills. Creator Jesus chose his human death as a further act of creation, and his resurrection testifies that he is eternal creator. As I consider the gospel values of self-sacrifice in Native culture and putting the um, interests of others ahead of your own, as a good Lakota leader does, I wonder how our collective narrative could have changed if the gospel had been introduced with a regard for an indigenous worldview instead of in colonizing terms. As it is after 500 years plus of evangelizing natives, maybe 2% of Indians will say that they follow Jesus. I remember hearing Lakota speaker Richard Twist at a justice conference in Portland, and the audience was mostly white, and he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was white. <laughs> and they laughed. Nobody ran him out of town. I was so surprised. He was being facetious, but not entirely wrong. And Richard is the one that uh, introduced me to the program uh, in Native Theology, and Randy Woodley was the one that made sure I got a last-minute place. We can look around today and see that all of creation has been marginalized. Human and non-human life, the earth and the sky, the water and the plants are all suffering. Man does not care for the earth as Creator does. Genesis is often exegeted to show man as the pinnacle of creation, with dominion over all, free to treat the earth as a commodity or a resource colony. The Western, that is a Western economic worldview that is destructive and unsustainable. I appreciate the words of Wendell Berry, who I say has a Lakota heart. He said, there are no unsacred places. There's only the sacred and the desecrated. It seems like we're in a state of ongoing desecration. We carry on the necessary routines of life against a backdrop of encroaching climate disaster. Floods, fires, hurricanes, melting polar caps, extinction of species. We bear the phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. The murder rate is up to 10 times as much as the normal rate in many places. Scorn against black life matters. Incarceration and death by police are disproportionately high for native and black men. 
We are confronted daily by racism, dehumanization, patriarchy, and white supremacy. Brown people have become door watchers, praying for that moment when their loved ones walk safely back in. So I wrestled with the question, Jesus, where were you? And the Spirit offered me this much. Jesus, our triune creator, is supernatural and transcends time and space. Creator transcends all the boundaries that he ordered for human existence. We know his many attributes. He is holy. He is just. He is all-knowing, merciful, and everywhere present. If we believe that, then it means that Jesus is with you in suffering, feeling that suffering, and he is on the cross, feeling the physical pain and the spiritual pain of petitioning an absent father. And he is suffering everywhere that creation is suffering. There is hidden suffering of humans and non-humans that I know we don't know about. But Jesus is there. Since he's not subject to the same linear time and space restrictions that we are, couldn't this be all happening right now, all at the same time? So where is Jesus? Jesus is supernaturally present everywhere all the time, working out his sacred redemptive purpose. Can we keep this faith that the harmony of shalom, the ultimate healing of salvation, will prevail? It's easy to lose heart as we see the injustice all around us. But can we do our part to put our faith to action, to seek a way to balance life where we live right now? Every movement makes a ripple. Maybe it's how we treat Thanksgiving this week. Thanksgiving is more than a meal. It's a myth that appears within a broader social justice context. It includes racist football logos. What if you refuse to use the R word for the Washington football team? Just because it's dehumanizing to your native brethren of the Imago Dei. In Creator's design, we are connected to the land, each other, and to all creation. We are designed for community. Clearly, we're out of relationship in so many ways today. But here's the good news. The message states it this way. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his only son, and this is why that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point out what you're doing wrong, how bad you are. He came to help to put the world right again. To put the world right again. In Sunday school, I learned that it meant you could be saved from going to hell. Heaven and hell, another religious dualism that doesn't tell you everything you need to know. What does that individually, individualistic, anthrocentric, hermeneutic, that translation, what does that do for the relatives in our community of creation? Nothing if we think that this is only for humans. But if we trust that creators so love the world, it includes what Randy Woodley calls the community of creation. In Genesis 131, creator looked down upon his work of creation 
and he called the entirety of it very good, profoundly good. Creator said three times to Noah in Genesis 9, I'm setting up my covenant with you, including your children, along with everything alive around you, birds, farm, animals, wild animals that came out of the ship with you. God also said the rainbow is a sign of the covenant that I've set up between me and everything living on earth. So all creation is in need of restoration and liberation, longing for the good ordering of creation as designed by Creator. Creation itself will be set free and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So lest we think that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for only humans, let's hear Romans 8 from the message. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. This means that creator Jesus so loved all creation that he died for all creation. If humans hold themselves as superior and apart from creation, we miss this point. Then we will fail to preserve a world in which we can all survive. We saw the response of creation when Jesus died. The sky went black in the middle of the day. The earth shook and the rocks split. Creation knew the immensity of the moment and the promise of restoration. Jesus died for all creation, that all creation might have shalom. So let's close with the Lakota story that we started with. Creator lovingly provided creation a place where all could flourish, the garden or hesapa. All was in right relationship until harmony was broken, symbolized in our story by the buffalo eating the people. And the people failing to respect the buffalo as relatives. Creator could have simply imposed a just outcome on creation, but Creator did not do their work for them. We also see that humans didn't control the process. No, the entire community of creation participated, even the smallest and slowest flyer. And this, they all participated in the ceremony of the race for healing to restore balance and harmony. Once the process was completed, all agreed to live out the resolution, upholding the values of sacrifice, generosity, humility, and respect. From a Lakota perspective, it's not about the linear orthodoxy. It's about a continuous orthopraxy of being a good relative. So don't lose heart, Mitakuyapi. The Spirit of God is everywhere present, always working out a redemptive healing purpose. Jesus is ready to put the world right again. Let's pray. Jesus, wopilao koshilapi. Thank you for all your help, Jesus. We love you.